I'm Dr. Lara Devgan. I'm a plastic surgeon in New York City, the CEO of Scientific Beauty, and of course, a major beauty enthusiast. You are listening to Beauty Bosses, where we chat with fellow industry leaders who are shaping beauty, fashion, wellness, and all things pretty. Hello, everyone. I'm so excited about today's episode of Beauty Bosses with the amazing Pamela Baxter. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you because you are formidable. You have done so many things. So Pamela is the former president and CEO of LVMH Beauty, Christian Dior Fashion. You're a veteran of 23 years at Estee Lauder. And now you are an entrepreneur and the founder of Bonafide Beauty Labs, and you do so many different things. It's kind of amazing. I've had quite the career and many, <laughs> many, many jobs. Um, so I want to take, I want you to take us back to the very beginning. When you were in like high school, college, what did you think you were going to do when you grew up? You know, I, I think I'm not one of those that had a path. I, I was obsessed. My mother was obsessed with fashion and beauty. She would not go out of the house unless she was completely dressed. My father was a rancher. We lived in Mobridge, South Dakota. So to imagine your mother dressing to the nines to go to the grocery store with a full face of makeup on, and I watched this every day of my life. So I think from a young age, I just gravitated toward the beauty routine, the fashion routine, always looking good. You know, and she used to quote, I think it was Elizabeth Arden that said, there aren't any ugly women, there are just lazy ones. <laughs> so she's like, make an effort. When you go out of the house, make an effort. I like that. Well, were you someone who in middle school and high school tried to put yourself together with outfits and makeup and things like that from a young age? Oh, I was working on the ranch from the time I was a kid to get money to go buy my fall school wardrobe. Oh my God. From the time I was 11 or 12 years old. That's amazing. Yes. I would mend fences. I would round up cattle. I would muck out the stables. I would do whatever I had to do to get the money. Did you think that you would move out of South Dakota? Was that part of your envisioned plan at that time? Yes. I always wanted to live in New York City. And I, it wasn't until I was 40 that I moved to New York City. Oh, wow. So what happened between, let's say, 18 and 40? I went to college. <clears throat> I came out of college, and I had friends that were going to Seattle, Washington to visit their parents, and I went with them. Uh, and I took a job at a department store because there were no jobs really at the time. It was kind of a recession, and Boeing was the major you know, employer in Seattle, and they had just laid off hundreds of employees. Uh, and so I took a job in a department store in the men's shirt department, and it was not fun. <laughs> and uh, one of the department managers came to me like maybe two months after I had started and said, you're a really great sales associate, and your makeup's really beautiful. Would you like to move to the makeup department? And I'm like, absolutely. So I moved to the cosmetic department, and a year later was a national, made a national artist for Charles Loritz. So I was a makeup artist, one of the national artists. I traveled That's the country. Did you just really find that you shined when you 
that transferred into an arena where your beauty love your love of beauty and knowledge of beauty could come through yes uh, you know, beauty transforms, I mean, I'm sure, as you know, because you do that every day. Yeah, it's amazing. It's very transformative. It's very confidence-boosting. It puts a smile on women's faces. Um, you know, if they're unhappy, it makes them very happy. If, if they're going through some kind of medical trauma, like I, you know, I volunteered for the Look Good, Feel Better program, putting makeup on you know cancer survivors when they've they've lost their hair and their eyebrows and you know that you you put this smile on their face that is you know it's you never forget it because you know what it's making them feel like inside and you know thus the name of look good feel better when you look good you normally just have more confidence and feel better i totally agree and that's something that i see with my work also where it's, it's quite remarkable. If somebody is able to present themselves in a way that makes them feel confident, they'll function better as a parent and spouse and you know worker and entrepreneur or business person. And just that little ineffable boost in your step that you get from putting yourself together is so remarkably powerful. Very powerful. I mean, let's face it, everyone's got insecurities or things that they might not be you know, totally confident about. But the way you look, the way you hold yourself, the way you carry yourself, the way you present yourself to the world is indeed super powerful. Yeah. Did you feel that at that time when you became um, a makeup artist and um, were kind of immersed in the world of beauty, did you ever encounter people who felt like or who made you feel like you were an airhead or, you know, superficial or anything like that? No, honestly, I didn't. I mean, every woman that sat in my chair or came to a master class, they were all there for one reason, to look better and to feel better. And they all wanted advice and they all wanted to be taught. And, you know, for the most part, no one's teaching you how to put makeup on when you're a child, uh, when you're growing up. I mean, my mother was an exception to the rule because she wore makeup and, you know, I could just watch her and learn through, through watching. But... It's, it's something I think, look, you either love makeup and you want... And you gravitate and you toward gravitate it and you respect it and you right. understand it. Yeah. Or, or you don't. Yeah. But no, I was, I was never made to feel... That's amazing because like I, that, I yeah. sometimes think that um, people can be a little dichotomized into you know, two buckets. The like, you know, whereas female and male identity, for that matter, are very complex and a lot of people exist in between. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, you know, the whole genderless thing today, I think, is super powerful, too, because there's a lot of boys that want to wear makeup, and you know what? Why not? Right. Who cares? Exactly. If it makes you feel better. If it makes you feel better, you exactly. should do it. Exactly. It's sort of like, you know, weighing it on someone's heel height or lipstick color, like, what is it to you on right. some level, right? Right. Um, okay, so what happened next? Uh, well, I, I went from makeup artist to trainer. I was the West Coast training supervisor for, for a couple of years and then was recruited by Princess Marcella Borghese, which was a major line owned by Revlon at the time, uh, to be an account executive. And then from there to Estee Lauder uh, as a field regional director. And this was all on the West Coast. And then nine years into my field position at Lauder, um, 
Leonard Lauder, after many, making many field trips and getting to know him, he just said to me one day, I think you would really be great in marketing. I think you should move to New York and take a job in marketing. And I'm like, okay, what does a marketing person do? And he said, well, he said, basically a marketing person develops all of the programs that you seem to come constantly complain about. So if you think you can do it better, <laughs> come and do it yourself. And so I did. So, and that's, I was 40 years old and I convinced my husband-to-be that we should move to New York. Maybe it'd just be for two or three years and that was like 30 years ago. So I came in and as an executive are. director of marketing uh, and, you know, through the course of the next 10 years, um, went from the Aramis Fragrance Division. I signed the first licensing agreement for the Lauder Corporation with Tommy Hilfiger, created, developed, and launched those fragrances. Uh, then on a trip to London one summer, I fell into the Joe Malone store and fell in love with Joe Malone and, you know, came back and told Leonard about it and ended up leading the acquisition of that. Oh, wow. And running Joe Malone. That's amazing. Uh, I love Joe Malone. Yeah, she was fantastic. Uh, she was such a perfumer. I mean, such a nose, made beautiful fragrances. And then in the hallway one day, I received the gift of a jar of cream called La Mer. The company had purchased it uh, from the daughters of Max. I don't know if you, you know the story of La Mer, but it was created by basically a rocket scientist. He worked for NASA and he was born, uh, burned in a, a laboratory fire. And he worked in his garage for seven years on this formulation and he was coming at it, of course, from a very different perspective than a cosmetic chemist. So he was harvesting seaweed from the Pacific Ocean and biofermenting it in tanks and then making this concoction into a cream. And that's where La Mer was born. And so when we, when we made the purchase, it was really just buying the formula. Uh, and then I was given the responsibility of turning it into a brand. So having to develop, you know, all the rest of the products that were going to go into making it. And um, so that was exciting. So that was kind of like a startup, too, in a way. Uh, the product and the premise and the story was there, but the brand was not developed. Uh, and we signed a licensing agreement with Kate Spade when Kate was only three years. She and Andy had, you know, started the handbag company. Mm -hmm. She was fantastic to work with um so you know that broke my heart when yeah yeah it was that, so that sad was, and so from what i knew of kate so unexpected um but she was lovely to work with and super involved in the fragrance and we had a great time developing that brand yeah her passing i think really shook, shook a lot yeah. of people uh, even yes. people who people who knew her well and people who didn't know her well yes because she represented so much of at least what people thought of as airy and fashiony Joy. and joyful and yes. light. Yes, and she was all those things, every bit of it, quirky and fun and, you know, great sense of humor and loved life. And she and Andy always seemed like, you know, the ideal, you know, married in love couple. So it, it was a shock to a lot of people, I think. Yeah, I think that... I think that 
it put wellness and happiness and mental health really forefront in a lot of people's minds for sure mental health because you know when you have that kind of a shocker you 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 just go okay what goes on behind the scenes where people are not really you know letting it out where they're not really sharing what their anxiety they're going through yeah right before I heard about Kate Spade's passing like maybe I think it was literally one or two days before I listened to her um, her podcast on how I built this with Guy Raz, which is a show that I love, um, and that um, inspired me to start this podcast. Actually, in answer oh, to your question, oh my earlier. gosh, oh my! This gosh. is sort of like my beauty version of the Guy Raz podcast. <laughs> you know, apologies, um, but I listened to her episode and I literally thought, oh my gosh, she is a boss babe. She yeah. is the definition of what I want to be, and she's like young, hip, cool, fashiony, living in New York, super successful. And I thought to myself, I want to be exactly like her. And then maybe one or two days later, I heard about her suicide and it just totally shook me. I had never met her. I've never met her in person. Um, but, you know, she inspired so many people, including me. Yeah, I didn't listen to that podcast, but the way you're describing her, that is that was exactly the way she was, a dynamo, just a whirlwind of yeah. joy. So, so anyway, so you're touching all of these amazing brands and, um, you know, you have a little bit of a knack for finding greatness all around you. I, I have, I think I have an, an eye and a, and a nose for successful either brands or stories. If there's a story to tell and it's authentic and there's a new way to tell it or if there's a founder like Joe that's super creative, um, that you feel that there's so much more that they could be doing, uh, it's very interesting to me. And then, you know, after 23 years at Lauder, I was, because I have this passion for fashion, I had a headhunter looking for a fashion job for me and couldn't get anyone in the fashion world to Really, After all of that branding and success, a successful career. That's shocking. They did not assume that there were transferable skills. That's so shocking from fashion to fashion to beauty. And so one day, the headhunter that was looking around for me uh, called to say that she had a job, a beauty job that she knew that I probably wouldn't be interested in but the company was interesting because they owned fashion brands. So she said it's, it's LVMH and they own a lot of brands that are sold in North America and they're all being run separately and they're all disjointed and they, they're looking for somebody to pull them all together. So it was a position that didn't exist yet. Um, so she read off the brands to me. It was Guerlain and Givenchy and Dior and Aqua de Parma and Fresh, which was a brand that they had just purchased uh, an American brand and so you know I did a little investigating I was out looking in stores because prescriptives do you remember prescriptives color printing yeah, all I skins do. and all I colors do. that was one of my brands at Lauder too and uh, so I was out seeing stores and looking at the primarily the Dior counters and then the Dior fashion stores because there's a, there was a disconnect so if you walked into a department store, any Macy's 
Federated May Company, it was before the merger of Federated and May Company. They were in every single department store in America, but no Neiman's, no Saks, no Bergdorf's. So you could buy the shoes and the handbags and the clothing at the upper echelon of, of the department store world, but no makeup. And it was Dior in fashion. So the retail stores were all just called Dior and they were all gray, silver, white, very clean, pristine. And the beauty counters were royal blue and gold. And the name of the company was Christian Dior and Script. Mm -hmm. So to me, it was two completely different companies, two, right. two completely different worlds. In fact, I didn't know much back then about the company and thought that the beauty brand might even be a license. So I wasn't really all that interested in those beauty brands, um, but I went through a couple of interviews and then she just called me once one day and said, there's one more person that wants to see you and it's Bernard Arnault. And so, you know, knowing that he has fashion brands, a uh, company not nearly as big back then, 15 years ago, as it is today, but still very important in the fashion world, obviously. Um, so I agreed to meet with him, and I was just super honest with him. I said, to be perfectly honest, I'm not here about the beauty business. I am here because I've been looking for a fashion job. And so he, he explained to me that he was very interested in fixing Dior, and what were my impressions, and I told him exactly what I had observed mm -hmm. when I was doing my store tours, and uh, he said that they had been thinking about that a lot, and that they might want to put a one Dior type of organization in place down the road, mm -hmm. but for now, he really needed somebody to focus on the Dior beauty business, and somebody to focus eventually on fresh because they purchased it and it didn't seem to be growing as fast as what they had expected. But the first order of business was to fix Dior. Um, I had just done an analysis at Lauder because I was trying to figure out how to put prescriptives back onto a path of growth. And uh, we were discussing cutting distribution in order to be able to go forward because they had kind of the same over-distribution issue that Dior had, and it was about the same size. So when Bernard Arnault asked me what it would cost and how long it would take to fix Dior, I said, from the observations, we just did a study at Lauder, brands are about the same size, probably around 30, 35 million dollars to close distribution in order to set it right for the future. And he sat back in this chair and he said, I don't really care, Mrs. Baxter, how much it costs or how long it takes. I want it really fixed. And so I said, I really want a fashion job <laughs> somewhere down the road. And so we agreed that I would come on board and that Dior was going to be the first mission to fix. And so within, I took the job in January and by April, I had made the decision to close the entire May Company, and it was $33 million worth of business. The most difficult business meeting I've ever been in in my life, because I've been in business with these people with past brands for years. Uh, and to tell 
someone that you're closing that kind of business with them is very difficult. Yeah. Um, but in the long run, it was the right thing to do. So we closed all those stores. We got all the inventory back by July. We went to meet with Neiman's and Sachs. Neiman's immediately responded by giving us five very important stores and very important locations and counters. And, you know, in 18 months, we were back on track to get all of that volume back and really grow the business in, in a better way that matched the fashion distribution. That's amazing. And then that segued into the fashion position. Correct. Yeah. So I took the, the beauty business uh, I took in 2004, and at the end of 2007, was given the responsibility for all of Dior. Uh, and that was a fascinating role because 90% of the Dior fashion business was its own retail stores. And if you own your own retail, you control your destiny because you control the inventory, you control the way the staff is allocated, how they're trained, everything about the experience of the consumer that comes into the store, as well as clienteling. You know exactly who your customer is intimately. So, you know, being able to go from my office to the Dior fashion store just in an elevator every single day and visit that store and meet the clients and see who they were and see what their needs were and to understand, you know, how you train that staff mm -hmm. uh, in order to be able to service those people. Uh, we did some very interesting things. We hired a a young man that came from the Ritz-Carlton who was, you know, in charge of training all the hospitality staff. And we hired him specifically to train all of our staff on how to treat people with a, a hospitality point of view, not a, I'm going to sell you something transactional. So how am I going to give you the best experience? That's so fascinating because little things like that can make such a big difference in someone's perception of a brand. Huge difference. And also it changes the perception of the staff from just looking at the people walking in the front door as a transaction and to really treat them as a person. And so we, you know, we did outings. We would take them to the, to the ballet. We would take them in small groups to fine dining restaurants so that they had the experience and had something to talk about that high level of clientele with and almost serve, especially for the tourists that were coming from out of town, as to, you know, what was the hottest Broadway show? You know, should what ballet should they see? What restaurant should they visit? It, it became more of a relationship mm -hmm. concierge service rather than I'm going to send you a handbag and send you on your way and never see you again. Right, because ultimately the most valuable commodity is credibility and trust and like kind of a that lifelong partnership absolutely yes and getting to know the family and what their routine is and what the special occasions they are it's all very yeah. in integral and so what brought you from uh, Christian Dior Beauty to where you are now as an entrepreneur well uh, I had a stint as an entrepreneur when I was in my 20s and it didn't work out that way <gasps> so that's how I ended up you know in corporate world, but I always had that in me to do something more entrepreneurial. And, uh, you know, the beauty business has changed dramatically over the last three or four years. Social media, lots of young entrepreneurs starting new businesses. And uh, a colleague of mine 
that I worked with at, at uh, Lauder, Kathy O'Brien, we had always been talking about starting something. And so the idea was to start a beauty incubator. Uh, I got involved with the Sephora Accelerate program as a mentor to the Accelerate cohorts and found a lot of very talented young ladies coming through those programs. Um, so the idea was we would start this company called Bonafide Beauty Lab. Uh, we, would, we would find some investors to invest and we would go and we would look for you know, small entrepreneurs to invest in. And in the meantime, we had uh, one of my friends introduce us to Lisa Sugar, who is the founder of Pop Sugar Media with her husband, Brian. Uh, and we just clicked. I mean, she talked about how she started Pop Sugar 12 years ago uh, as, as a blog. And when she got up to a million followers, she quit her advertising job and her husband, and she started Pop Sugar with the name coming from Sugar, their last name, and Pop from Pop Culture, because what mm -hmm. she loved to write about was celebrity and beauty and fashion. And uh, beauty is the number two vertical for Pop Sugar. So they have a highly engaged audience, and she was looking for someone to create a beauty line for her under a licensing agreement. So we were, it was fascinating because we were able to communicate with that pop sugar reader, mm -hmm. and there are millions of them, and we could send out surveys and get direct answers back. So that was fascinating because you, you, you can send out a survey and then less than like 72 hours you have we sent out 2,000 on the first go-round mm -hmm. and got 800 responses That's a high I've response never rate. Never wow, seen that that's kind amazing. of response rate before uh, And on the first go-around what these the, the audience for pop sugar is primarily millennial mm -hmm. uh, and what she told us was that she was she cruelty-free was very important to her mm -hmm. um, They're reading the backs of packages. So non-toxic ingredients they they're they're not completely knowledgeable but they're knowledgeable enough to know what they don't want in their products they were asking for some skincare ingredients to be infused in their makeup wherever possible um, they described their lifestyle as super busy so this is not the young lady that's sitting in front of her mirror for an hour putting her makeup on mm -hmm. She had maybe 10 minutes. A lot of them were young mothers and working. Mm -hmm. um, so they wanted to look polished and professional. Uh, they wanted to get out the door in 10 minutes. They didn't want to cover up what they had. They wanted to enhance what they had. So buildable coverage to them in all aspects, whether it was lips, eyes, cheeks, whatever, uh, was important. And portability, uh, ease of application, a lot of fingertips going on here not like scores of brushes and sponges and everything mm -hmm. no no strobing no you know not the highlighting right, not right, that, right, all right. that stuff uh, and so that really all that information that we got back from that reader really informed the items that we came out with so it's a it's a makeup line that we launched last March with Ulta Beauty uh, and since then have gone on QVC um, and about to launch 35 impulse doors for Macy's and the pop sugar company signed a licensing agreement for clothing with Kohl's and uh, I don't know how much
much you know about Kohl's, but they're very aggressively going after beauty and the young customer. Yeah, that's very cool. And so they, their uh, Kohl's came after us, so we're testing in 200 of their, of their top pop sugar clothing doors because they launched last August. So, so that's it's a very growing, exciting time. It's, it's growing, growing super fast. Yeah, it's growing super fast, and it's very exciting, and we're learning something new from the customer every day. We just sent out a survey not that long ago of, you know, the foundation user versus the tinted moisturizer user, mm-hmm. and tinted moisturizer is growing by leaps and bounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and SPF, you know, they're finally understanding the need either to use an SPF or to use a product that has an SPF. Yeah, absolutely. Are you hearing that in your practice? Oh, one of the best-selling products in my line is our... Um, Platinum SPF 45 Daily Tinted BB Cream, and there it's an SP, a titanium-based SPF combined with a BB cream and a tinted moisturizer, and it has a proprietary pigment that blends to any skin tone. And we cannot keep it on the shelf because it has, it kind of, you know, intuitively sort of meets all these criteria that you're talking about yes. because um, that's sort of the customer of 2019. It's yeah. somebody who's busy on the go who wants performance-based beauty products that are um, serving multiple functions at once. That, that's, so that's, there you go. That's absolutely it. So instead of launching with you know, 50 shades of foundation, we launched Pop Sugar with eight shades covering a multitude because you know the CC creams, tinted moisturizers, each shade can cover at least three different skin totally. ranges. Uh, and we put an SPF 15 in it, so it's not a 45, it's not meant to go to the beach. But, you know, running around in and out of the car in yeah, the and office, it's, it performs a function. And, and as we were saying earlier, the best skincare is the, the yes. stuff that you actually wear. That's yeah, in, the, the, the stuff that's <laughs> on your face and not in the bottle. Uh, so. Yes, or in your medicine cabinet. <laughs> so you can have your SPF infinity that leaves you completely opaque, chalky white, but it or, doesn't mean anything if right. it's not on your face. Right, yes, if you're not using it, if you're not enjoying it, if it's not making you look better and more confident, then you're not wearing it. Exactly. Bringing you joy in today's Bringing parlance. Bringing you joy, yes. Um, okay, amazing. So we're almost out of time, but I wanted to close by asking you to give some advice to our listeners. So we actually have um, millions of downloads on this podcast now, which is so That's super so exciting. Um, I was just looking at the stats yesterday. And so a lot of our listeners are um, women and men aged about 18 to 45. Um, and it skews a little younger. So a lot of people listening to this podcast have aspirations and dreams related to business and beauty. Um, so what are a couple of pieces of advice that you wish you knew when you were, let's say, 25 years old, looking at this field? Well, if, you know, if I look back at, at my career and all of the different you know, opportunities that I've had, the, the one thing that I can say you know, that has made me successful is is being fearless in a way because every opportunity that was ever presented to me if I had second guessed it I probably wouldn't have done it if I had analyzed all the things that maybe I didn't know or couldn't achieve I would have not taken the opportunity so my advice is take risks Somebody presents you with something, don't even think about it. Just say yes 
and then you'll figure out later where the parachute is because there is one. So that, that would be, I would say, that's, that's my top advice that I give to young people is do not overanalyze an opportunity that comes your way. Yeah. Just take it because each one is going to teach you something new. And don't be afraid to make decisions because your worst decision is the one that you didn't make. I love that because we sometimes are our own worst enemies. We overthink things into oblivion and all of us have this tendency where, you know, sometimes you can talk yourself out of something that you really should do. I've seen a lot of, you know, former colleagues in my past that won't make a decision. And if you don't make a decision, they're, they're afraid that they'll make the wrong decision and then they don't make one. You don't learn from no decision. Whether it's right or wrong, you're going to learn from it. Exactly. So there's a fork in the road and you take it, right? You take it, (laughs) and if it was the wrong one, you're going to find another one. Exactly. Just find it fast. Well, because in looking back at your career, you know, through the retrospectoscope, it makes perfect sense. Each stage in your career rationally bleeds into the next stage, but yet looking prospectively, there's sort of no way that you would have predicted that you'd end up right here. And so that's kind of the magic of the journey. Absolutely. And, you know, that's that's why I say when if you're presented with, or if you have an idea, don't be afraid to express it. Like, you know, the lauder companies were not purchasing tons of companies back when I brought them Joe Malone. But, you know, that was something that I thought was really special, and she was special. And so that started a pro- proliferation of, you know, them acquiring companies. So if you have an idea and it seems off the wall and out of context, so what? People can just say, no, I think it's a bad idea. Yeah, and that's the worst that could happen. Right, and then that's the end of that. But it could put you on a different path. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, and um, it was such a pleasure having you. Pleasure to meet you, too. Thank you. Thank you.